Hi, my name is Justin, and I'm the executive pastor of Family Life here at GCC. And I just want to let you know that we believe this is your time. This is your time to worship. It's your time to serve. It's your time to grow. And I want to take just a moment to let you know what your next steps are. At the end of every service, we do something called Gen and Five. It's where we take just five minutes to talk about who we are as a church. We also have something called Connect Class, where we go in depth and we talk about the DNAs and the values of who we are. If you want to serve, we have something called Behind the Scenes Tour, where you can do just that. You can go behind the scenes of who we are as a church and find out where your spot is. And finally, we would love to connect with you as you connect with Christ at our Next Steps area. So no matter where you're at, we cannot wait to see you. you to have, have a seat and really we want that song to usher us into what God has to say to us today from the this final picture in finding Jesus. Uh, we're going to go ahead and invite our serve team to help us uh, with our time of giving of tithes and offerings as we kind of dive into uh, what God has for us today. It's a season of giving and uh, we want the house, the storehouse of the Lord to be full to do the work that he's got for us to do. And so uh, we come giving. Right now, I would let everyone know, just as a little piece of business, uh, we're having regular church this weekend. Uh, we hope that our experience every time we come around and we open God's Word is uh, incredible and that God speaks through it. Um, but this is not our uh, Christmas Eve reflection time. We're actually having separate Christmas Eve services starting tomorrow night. Five and seven, and then they're run pretty much all day on Tuesday. And so uh, we invite you out for a candlelight, um, just incredible traditional Christmas Eve service. We've got some really cool things planned, and you're not going to want to miss it. You're going to want you're going to want to drag people with you, whether they come or not. You know, whether they want to come or not, doesn't matter. Just get them here. Get them here, because uh, God's going to really do some cool stuff through His Word. Uh, we're looking and have been looking at this idea of finding Jesus. Finding Jesus. There's a story that can be found in Reader's Digest that Dick Van Dyke tells, the famous old comedian, uh, about a preacher who's talking to a young, a young man, and he's, he's looking at a picture of Jesus. And this preacher, and talking to this little kid, he's trying to explain to the kid that this probably isn't exactly what Jesus looked like, um, but this is, you know, the artist interpretation of what Jesus looks like, and it's just artwork, and the kid stands there, and he looks at the painting for a while, and, you know, makes funny faces, and he kind of tilts his head to the side, and after a moment, he looks at the preacher and says, well, sure looks like him, and that's where we're all at this time of year. We are all like a little kid who's trying to get as close as we possibly can to who is Jesus actually really the historical person who walked on this earth and where is he at now? This has always circled his life. Upon his birth, people were looking for him. The wise men were looking for him. Shepherds were looking for him. Herod was trying to find him and kill him. People wanted to find Jesus. When he was a junior high student, he escaped from mom and dad, and uh, they were looking for him, a little bit irate, and they finally found him in the temple, and he was confused at why everyone didn't understand where he would be when Jesus started his ministry, probably somewhere around 30 years old. He was constantly coming up missing. He knew where he was. Jesus isn't lost. Jesus isn't playing hide and seek. Uh, he, he doesn't need uh, navigation help. It's people that don't know where Jesus is at. 
And people were always looking for him. Even upon his death, there was a big mystery because he resurrected from the grave. And even then, his closest followers were trying to find Jesus, trying to find the body, trying to get close to him. So I asked the question today, where is Jesus at? Where's he at? I just returned from a trip to Israel in November. We went to the church in the nativity and stood in lines and went to the place where they're like, we can guarantee you almost kind of perhaps maybe. This is definitely the spot, probably, maybe. But we have a gift shop. But right here, right here is where it happened. And we stood in line and, you know, they didn't, they didn't even put another baby in place. There's was just an empty manger because Jesus is not there. Went to the graveside and uh, beautiful services at uh, Gordon's tomb and had communion just like we just did. We remembered the life, the death, the burial, the resurrection of Christ and sang some songs that you might know or have heard before. And Jesus's body was not there. Where is he at? He gives us some clues himself. And it's no wonder that everyone was always looking for Jesus because by his own admission, he was planning on being gone a lot. He says in John chapter 16, verse 7, Truly I tell you, it is good for you I'm going away. Unless I go away, the advocate will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. The advocate is one of the words used here for the spirit of the living God. We serve a triune God, a three-in-one God, the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. Jesus says, I have to go away because I'm going to go and get the Spirit and send the Spirit. Trust me, you want me to go away. So Jesus isn't here. When people come to a life-saving relationship with Jesus, sometimes they say, I invited Jesus into my heart. That makes sense only because Jesus says, I stand at the door of your life. I call you on an adventure, but Jesus doesn't move in. He's not got a U-Haul where he's like, I've been waiting to check out the new digs. You know, he didn't come in and get in your heart. That, that's not where he's at. He, it's the spirit of the living God that comes to live inside of us. Jesus isn't living inside of us. We're following his words. We're following his teaching. We're, we've made him the Lord of our life by our obedience to him, but he's not living inside of us. The spirit of God is living inside of us. John seven thirty three, Jesus said, I'm with you only for a short time, and then I'm going to the one who sent me. You will look for me, but you will not find me, and where I am, you cannot come. No wonder they were a little jittery. Jesus is like, I'm going to leave and you're not going to be able to find me. They're like, is he gone yet? Is he here? Is he still, is he still here? Because do we know where he's at? This was a, a theme. John 16, 28. Jesus describes his relationship this way. I came from the Father and entered the world. Now I am leaving the world and going back to the Father. Jesus, by his own words, tells us, I'm going to come up missing and you're going to try to find me. It's going to be a it's going to be an adventure. It's going to be something. It's a journey that you're going to go on. And it's not because I, I just love to play hide and seek. He actually is pursuing us in this adventure. But people have been trying to find Jesus. There are some clues. In the end, at, at the end of the, the synoptic gospels, those who saw Jesus' life, there are some clues to the question of where's, where's he at then? If he's not in the tomb and he's not, he's not, Still a baby in the manger. Where's he at? Mark 16, verse 19. We get this clue. After the Lord Jesus had spoken to them, and this is after his resurrection, it says, he was taken up into heaven and he sat at the right hand of God. 
technically where he's at right now is he's in heaven in the throne room of God and he's got his own throne at the right hand of God the Father. Acts chapter one, verses three, eight, and nine say this. After his suffering, he presented himself to them and gave many convincing proofs that he was alive. He appeared to them over a period of 40 days and spoke about the kingdom of God. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you. You will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. Verse 9, after he said this, he was taken up before them, before their very eyes, and a cloud hid him from their sight. It's clear that We've got, we got some clues telling us where Jesus actually is. If we're on a, on a mission of finding where Jesus is, and the whole world is going to do its best to slow down right now and concentrate in the next couple of days on Jesus, and everyone wants to have an authentic experience with him and find him, why do so few people know where he's actually at? There seems to be a great confusion about where Jesus really is. One of the best clues, one of the most interesting clues, comes into the, the beginning of the church. See, after Jesus' ascension and the Spirit comes on the day of Pentecost, the church comes alive. Jesus is being followed. People are believing that Jesus is the Messiah, the one sent to be the Son of God. And the church is growing. I mean, if you're part of a growing church, there's stuff to do. Right? There's people to feed, always. There's, there's orphans, there's widows, and there's a young man by the name of Stephen who's a part of the growing church in the city of Jerusalem. He's not in charge of the church. He's young, probably 16, 17, 18 perhaps. And he's just doing stuff. He's just willing and obedient. The apostles are like, Peter, Stephen, check on that guy. Stephen, check on that lady. Stephen, get the food ready. And he's out doing it. And the, some of the the leaders of the, the Judaism, they catch, they catch Stephen and they corner him and they're like, but what do you think you're doing? And he preaches a sermon and it's, it is fire. You read this, Acts chapter six, seven. He accounts the whole thing and just, I'm gonna let me tell you who Jesus is since you guys are asking why, what authority I do the things I do. He makes a little mistake towards the end of his sermon where he calls them stiff-necked. It's, it's bad to insult people while you're preaching, Okay. Um, stiff-necked is like they're stubborn. They're never going to believe that Jesus is the Son of God. And they get mad. And what really happens, we're looking for clues about where Jesus is. One of the biggest clues in all of God's Word is right here. Stephen's last words in his sermon turn into a stoning. But listen to Stephen's clue. When members of the Sanhedrin heard this, Acts 7.54, they were furious and gnashed their teeth at him. But Stephen full of the Holy Spirit, looked up to heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. Look, he said, I see heaven open and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. Incredible. Last thing Stephen says, they kill him for that. Like, how dare you talk about where Jesus is? This is one of the biggest clues that actually lets us know where Jesus is today. It would be 30 years of silence about clues on where Jesus is from that point. The Gospels, most of the Gospels were written around somewhere around 67, 68 AD. It was 30 years after that that the youngest apostle, the Apostle John, is uh, kind of marooned on the island of Patmos. He's in exile. It's a little island in the Mediterranean Sea. And he gets taken up in a vision. And this is where the book Revelation comes from. 
God says, John, I need, I need to show you a picture of where Jesus is. The whole book of Revelation is a picture of Jesus in reality right now. So we don't have to wonder, where's he at? Have you found Jesus? I don't know. Someone said they found Jesus and their life has changed. But technically, where is Jesus at? We're told in the book of Revelation, specifically Revelation chapter 5. 30 years later, although the church has been growing, we've not had a clue like this and we get a full picture of the reality of Jesus. He says this, Then I saw on the right hand of him who sat on the throne a scroll with writings on both sides and sealed with seven seals. Now listen, don't, don't do this thing where you get glassy-eyed and you're like, I'm in church and they're talking about scrolls and seals and I'm lost. You can do this, okay? Um, if I had one superpower, it would be to remember all my passwords. I mean, some of you are like, I wish I could fly. I just want to remember my passwords, okay? They, they didn't have passwords to everything. I mean, there's a password to everything in my life now, right? Um, they didn't have that. They had seals back then. And uh, we don't use scrolls to read. Most of us read now on a tablet or a smart device, and we don't even rarely read books. And so all this is saying is that God the Father is sitting on the throne, and he has an official document. It is password protected. The way they protected documents was they would seal them, hot wax, some type of insignia ring that was specially crafted, and it would be sealed with that ring. And if you, you didn't have authority to open it, you couldn't open it. If you did open it, you would die. It's not like, oh no, how am I going to break the wax? I can't do it. Okay, you could do it, but you, the punishment is death. Okay, so most people, they don't break the seal. They don't have authority to break the seal. All it is is it's a book that is sealed up. The fact that there are seven seals is important. That would tell everyone listening, the first hears this, that this is an official document. Um, last will, testaments, and uh, how, how you're going to conduct the affairs upon your death in the Roman government was sealed with seven different seals. It took someone with authority to open the layers of someone's will. This would have clearly communicated to the leaders that God is holding something that is official, that there's news to it, and it takes someone with authority to be able to open this thing. Six, man was created on the sixth day in the account of Genesis. And so the number seven is considered God's holy number. God rested at the perfection of his creation on the seventh day. So the fact that it's sealed, here's how it's sealed. It is sealed perfectly, and God is holding it. So this is the scene in the final picture of Christ that we get in God's holy word that he has given to us and miraculously preserved. What we get is that God the Father is sitting there and he's holding this document and it's sealed. Here's what happens next. I saw a mighty angel proclaiming in a loud voice, verse two. The angel says, who is worthy to break the seals and open the scroll? But no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth could open the scroll or even look inside of it. I wept and wept because no one was found who was worthy to open the scroll or, or look inside Maybe you're, you're a little bit there like, I don't know why John's crying here. Um, he's in heaven. He he should know. God's getting ready to tell him that there's no crying in heaven. It's kind of a rule. And here he is crying. Um, you know, and, and it might be a, a 
a little bit off for you, but get this. I, I think that at the deepest part of who you are, you could admit that there's some brokenness in the world. Imagine John, he's, he's seen a lot of life probably in his 80s at this point. He's seen a lot of brokenness. He's seen the persecution of the church and he's caught up in a vision. He's standing before God and God has uh, the ordinances and his plans for how he is going to fix everything. And the, the, the summation of all of his plans are held up in this document that's password protected and no one can open it. There's a big strong angel saying, who can do it? Who can open the password-protected scroll? Who has authority? Who's got uh, you know, the credentials to come and open this? And John's like, there's no one anywhere. There's no one around. And the sadness of that moment, the creation is a screwed up mess, as John sees it. And it's not God's plan. And God's plans are right there, but we can't get to them because no one's got their credentials. He loses it. He's weeping at what could be, at what should be, at what must be. And there seems to be no hope. And he's overcome with sadness because things aren't how they should be. I would imagine, I don't care how perfect you think your life is, at some point you get that. Everything you buy can get stolen or rust or bugs come in and eat it. Like Things break. Shoes don't stay shiny. Makeup runs. I don't know how else to tell you guys this. I'm trying to get you to get to like things go bad with stuff in this world. And he's seeing that and he's like, what are we gonna do? Well, what happens is there's a little sidebar conversation. This is a big moment. God picked John and said, John, I'm gonna show you heaven so you can record it. So everyone for the rest of time will have hope. This doesn't seem like a hopeful moment. He's crying and he's supposed to bring us hope. So a sidebar conversation happens. Happens in verse five. Here's the sidebar conversation. One of the elders said to me, do not weep. I think this should be translated, stop it. <laughs> Call the wambulance. We're in heaven, man. This is a big moment and you're kind of stepping into it. The lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of Dev David has triumphed. He is able to open the scroll and its seven seas. This moment's happened. He's ushered into heaven. God is sitting there. God's got the scroll. Big dude, angels like, who can do it? Who can open it? Who can make this happen? And all of a sudden, John, off cue, starts weeping. And, and an elder, an elder, that means someone who's seen some winters and some summers, okay? They've seen some life. They've seen the goodness of God. They've seen the faithfulness of God. They pull him aside like, hey, dude, you are killing this moment. Quit it. Dry it up. Like you, John, are supposed to know the, the number one Sunday school answer of all time, which is, come on, John. Look around. Look around. There's someone that can do this. And what's happening in this moment is it's very much like uh, you've probably seen this on a movie when everyone gets dressed up and they go to the big ball. And when the important people come in, they get announced. Hear ye, hear ye, Duke and Duchesses from, and they've got like a really long title, right? Name and Mr. and Mrs. and all of their, that's what's going on. And right before, right before the angel can get to like, that one is worthy. John starts crying and the elders go like, hold on a minute, I got this, I got this, I got sidebar. Stop it. You remember like when Jesus healed people and you lived with him? He's right over there. He describes him in three ways. 
He is the Lion of Judah. We just sang it. I love it when we sing God's word in church. Not just words that we make up, but we sing God's word. God writes the best songs. This elder says, the Lion of Judah. The reason that that matters is there are, there are 12 main tribes that make up the nation of Israel. And it was prophesied that the Messiah, the Son of God, would come from the tribe of Judah. It does not say that God would come uh, as a child and be born into the tribe of Judah and he would come as a really fun, playful cult. Just love to gallop around the meadow. Or a talkative but funny dolphin. No, it says he comes as a lion. You know why the lion can lay in the middle of the, the field and sleep at noon? The reason the lion can do that is the lion is afraid of no other animal. Every other animal is afraid when it sleeps because there are bigger animals. The lion is not afraid. He's the king of the jungle. And Jesus comes fulfilling all the prophecies and the way that he comes and he is the Messiah is he comes and triumphs with the roar of a lion and beats death. He's also described this way, the root of Jesse. You're like, I don't even know what that means. The, the root of David. Well, David was the most famous king of Israel of all time. At the height of Israel's political dominance, David was its king. Before Israel was divided and conquered by other nations and spread all throughout the world until 1948 when they recently got back together. All of that time, the height of their political power was under David. This is incredible. And so what they're saying is this, that elder's saying, there's a legitimate king over there. There's a worthy king over there. He's got royal blood in his veins. He was born to the right family from the right tribe and he did all the right things. And let me tell you what he did. He triumphed. You know what that means, John? Wipe your tears, bro. He is able to open the scroll. He can do it. John has a different description of Jesus though. When John looks over and he sees the, the lion of the tribe of Judah and the root of David and the one who is triumphed, he describes Jesus this way. Then I saw a lamb looking as if it had been slain, standing at the center of the throne encircled by the four living creatures and the elders. You know, lambs are not majestic, right? This is very out of place. If we think critically about this, if any one of us had been there, we would be like a really good stagehand and be like, hey, little lamb, can I get you over here? Let's get you out of the center of like the throne of God where the angels are dressed in splendor and all of the really good music happens and all the important people are. We'd be getting the, the dead, dead looking lamb out of there. But John describes Jesus as this. He was slain, but he was a lamb. The reason Jesus is called the lamb is that for 2,000 years preceding him, for thousands of years, centuries and centuries from the time of the Passover, lambs were slain for the forgiveness of the sins of all of Israel. Innocent, perfect lambs, not the, one that no, not the lamb that nobody wanted. Hey, get that one. He's got one. You know, it's just, he, he looks weird. He's been off. We've known it. Get him. Keep all the goods. They would find the best lamb and they would kill the lamb because a blood offering had to be sacrificed for the forgiveness of sins. And Jesus stopped all of that forever. He is the last and final lamb. And when John sees Jesus in the throne room of heaven, he says, I see one who has been slain and he's the lamb. Listen to what the lamb does. This is the moment. 
he went and took the scroll from the right hand of him who sat on the throne. And when he had taken it, this is the cue. This is like start the click track right here. The four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb. Each one had a harp and they were holding golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of God's people. Our prayers, all of the prayers ever prayed that the Holy Spirit hears, takes to the throne room of heaven like a sweet smelling fragrance. Our prayers smell sweet to God and they put them in these bowls and they hold the bowls in front of the Lord. And when Jesus is who's able, Jesus who has the credential, he takes the scroll that's password protected and says, I know the password. I've got credential to do this. And God's like, yes, you have. And he takes it, that starts it. And everyone starts to worship at that moment. It says harp. You gotta get like four strings, kind of out of tune, plunk, 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 bad song. No one's buying that soundtrack today. Get that out of your mind. It's got to be something as cool or better than like a Les Paul guitar with a Marshall half stack, okay? God made these. This is an incredible, incredible moment. They've got their rock and roll power stance on and they're like, is he going to take it? He's going to take it. And the lamb takes it. And they're like, start the song. There's an actual song. God's word is full of all kinds of things like history, battles, and just like, God's word is full of genealogies. So-and-so begot so-and-so begot so-and-so. We got to know it because it's history and it's fact. God's word is full of poems. One of the things that centers God's word is songs. God writes the best song. Here is the song that they sing. You are worthy to take the scroll, to open its seals, because you were slain and with your blood you purchased for God persons from every tribe and language and people and nation. You have made them to be a kingdom and priests to serve God and they will reign on earth. Then I looked and I heard the voice of many angels numbering thousands upon thousands and 10,000 times 10,000. They encircled the throne and the living creatures and the elders. In a loud voice they were saying, Worthy is the lamb who is slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and, and strength and honor and glory and praise. Then I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and on the sea and all that is in them saying to him who sits on the throne and to the lamb be praise and honor and glory and power forever and ever. Amen. And the four living creatures said amen. And the elders fell down and worshiped. This is the song of all songs that will ever be sang. You just got the lyrics in advance. You gotta know these words. Don't get up there and be singing watermelon. That'd be awkward. You gotta know the words to this song. I know the words to a lot of songs, unfortunately, that I cannot get out of my head. This is one that's gotta be written on our hearts. This is one that's happening right now. This is the reality of Jesus. Jesus does not need us to accept him for this to be his reality. Jesus is hopeful because he loves us that we would accept his reign as God in our life. That we would accept his rule and sovereignty in our life. That we would accept the fact that he is worthy and we would understand that we are not and only he is worthy. And we would join with all of heaven and all earth and every creature that's under the earth and in the sea and not let our voices miss that moment. The final picture of Jesus is one of victory. It's all about Jesus. And it's not about a baby who needs to be carried. 
It's not about a baby who's helpless and needs to be weaned by a mother and told when to go to bed and told when to get up. It's amazing that Jesus came and experienced birth like we did. I mean, it's mind-blowing that he humbled himself to, to something as fragile as infancy. But he's all grown up. And right now, he is a lamb and the lion of Judah and a legitimate king of the Davidic throne. And he is standing in heaven and he looked at his father and he said, I've got the password and I'll take that book and I can open it. Which means he can solve our problems. He can fix brokenness. The young man by the name of Nadine Curry. Nadine spoke very differently than uh, all of his classmates. See, Nadine uh, escaped some persecution with his mother from Liberia. Nadine is 13 years old. He is five foot two and 100 pounds wet. And they settled, him and his mother settled in uh, a rough neighborhood of Philadelphia. As you can imagine, uh, that, that probably just brought some, some hardship on this kid. And you're 13 years old and you've lived in another culture your whole life. You, you bring that with you. It, it's just, I mean, you're, you're baked. I mean, who you are as a person, it, it, there's a lot in there. And it's, it's hard to just be dropped in the Philly and overnight just fit in with all the other kids. Uh, needless to say, he was hazed, picked on. One day after school, a group of seven kids caught him and began a 30-minute beating. This, it, it, sounds like the, it sounds like the beginning of Karate Kid, but unfortunately, there's no Mr. Miyagi in this story to teach him karate moves, okay? He got beat up for 30 minutes. Uh, it was snowy. They drug him through the snow. At one point, they shoved him into a tree. At another, at another point, towards the end, they took him and they hung him on a wrought iron fence, just left him there. This little kid from Liberia, um, he probably would have had a few more beatings to go had not one of, the, one of those involved in the beating filmed the whole thing and posted it to YouTube. Well, obviously, once it's posted to YouTube, the police get involved. It's a criminal investigation and justice was brought uh, to all of those involved. All of those involved were identified and dealt with uh, with the law. But uh, it was an incredible story and the editor, the, the person that works for The View, this morning show, if you are familiar with The View, uh, they grabbed a hold of the story and they invited young Nadim and his mother to be a part of the TV show, The View. And he shows up and the premise is they're going to they're gonna show the video and they're going to have a little segment on how bad bullying is. And this kid, not only did he have to endure that, but now he's got to sit there and watch it with all these famous ladies on The View and watch himself get beat up again on live national television audience. He makes his way through it. He's got an incredible line where he says, you know, one good thing that came out of this is uh, it's an example to stop this from happening. And, you know, next time it, it probably won't happen by these seven. And it could have happened to someone smaller than me and that, that'll be stopped. And really courageous thing for a young man to say. Uh, the bow on everything though, because you know they do this in TV land. They're so good at it. They, they had a surprise for him. When, when the video comes to a close, little did he know that there were some other people from the city of Philadelphia that were backstage. Uh, they were some of the football players from the Philadelphia Eagles football team. He'd become a, a big fan of the Philly Eagles. And uh, these guys walked out. Now, the big name that they brought in was Deshaun Jackson. 
Okay, he's the big name. Deshaun's not going to scare a bunch of a bunch of kids. He's fast and he can run. He can score touchdowns, but he's not a big guy. So Deshaun brought a bunch of the linemen with him. They came and they sat down next to the team. Big smile on this kid's face. He knows who they are instantly. He's so excited. And they pull out their personal cell phones and they say, "Bro, what's your phone?" And they start to enter their cell phone numbers on his speed dial list. Picture perfect, right? I mean, this kid gets to walk around for a couple of weeks with an Eagles jacket on, holding his phone in the air. It's like, don't mess. You do not want to see number three. He's bigger in person. He gets a little swagger in his step, right? He's got some protection. It's a true story. It's a great story. Here's the deal for you. Because it's all about access. I, I don't know if those guys still have the same cell phone numbers or if they're still on that team and the way the NFL goes, most of them are probably traded by this point. We have incredible access. We have Jesus, the Lion of Judah on speed dial. We marvel at the fact that he came to this world as a baby. That's called humility. That's the kind of God we serve. But he grew up and he was slain and beat it. And we have access to the throne room of heaven. And it's so important that we know where Jesus is right now. It's, it's great for our focus to come around the, the manger scene at this time of year and give thanks for that beautiful historical moment. But do not stay there. Take a step backwards and look at the life of him who was slain and know where he is at right now. He stands in all of all of the glory of heaven. And one big, bad, awesome angel says, who is worthy? Who is worthy to take the scroll from the Father and to open the seven perfect seals and to bring to account all that is broken in our lives and to bring back to fulfillment all that God created the world to be and to put the perfect plans of God in motion and the lamb steps up and takes it and the angels hit that awesome A chord and they start that song and they say, he is worthy. He is worthy. He's worthy to take your sin. He is more worthy than every pursuit you have in your life. And some of us are drastically, we are, we are fans of things. And we're making other things worthy. We are chasing things that are not worthy. Only he is worthy. He doesn't need us to accept him. He is worthy already, but do not let your voice be missed out if you are a believer. If you are a believer and you are in Christ and his spirit lives in you and you're confident of that, these are the words you've got to memorize. These are the words of the song you got to know. Don't let your voice miss out from the great song that God has written. In, in Revelation chapter 5, that says, He is worthy. He has defeated death. Because he is slain, he is worthy. All honor and glory and power belong to you forever and ever. Amen. Join with the angels. Join with the elders. But get this. Get this. Get this. What, what that really is, that's called the good confession. And really, that's just summed up. When you stand up and say, you are worthy, that's confessing. If you've never confessed that Jesus Christ is the Lord, that you say, I believe that he is the son of the living God. I believe that he came and lived a perfect life. And, and I accept him as my Lord and Savior. I'm going to start to follow his teaching. And I'm going to stop following other things that are going to perish. I'm going to follow him. That's called the confession 
upon your confession and your baptism into the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. The Spirit of the living God comes to live in you. And you've got this. You've got access to the throne room, to the Lamb. And your prayers get put in that bowl and they rise like a fragrant sense to the Lord. Don't go through this special season without claiming you are worthy because no one else is worthy. No one else can step up. No one else can do it. The question that we are asking ourselves is does God really love us? He loves us so much that he sent his son to be obedient to humanity, to die that death so that he could grab that scroll and say, I'm worthy for you. Are you ready on this day to say, you are worthy of my devotion? Don't let the sun go down without telling your God that he is worthy. Church, let's join in with Revelation chapter five. Let your voice be heard. He alone is worthy. Let's sing it. Does the Father